Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by LMNT Element. So this is literally our favorite electrolyte drink that we have probably two or three I don't of every single day. Describe it as an electrolyte drink. That's not no, why I drink it. No. You drink it because it tastes so good. Check this out, Jay. I was just traveling and teaching. And one of the things I don't do a lot of is I don't eat before I have to get up on stage for four hours. I kind of do this thing like, let me be fast, a little hungry, like a little feral wolf You mean there. a big old turkey sandwich doesn't help you perform <laughs> better on eat, stage? I do not eat the food log burrito. But what I do and has changed my life here is I always am chronically hypohydrated. I set up three or four little of those bottles that they give you and I just dump an element in each one. And I guarantee you, I am sharper and I felt better than I have in forever. If you are doing time-restricted eating or playing fasting, fasting keto, low carb, or you're sweating hard on the Peloton or in your CrossFit workout, you need to add the salt back. It changes the game. It's also like really good for people who are breastfeeding or have certain other health conditions. We like have heard just anecdotally. Not hydrating enough. Yeah, yeah. You just aren't getting enough salts. Look at your body as a electrical charge system. Look at elements as plugging that thing back in. You, I promise you high quality salts make you drink more and you will feel better. I wasn't kidding when I said we are literally drinking it every day. You want to get some element right now. You can order a sample pack for just the price of shipping, which is $5 in the U.S., their sample packs include eight packets, so you can try each of their eight flavors. Go to the readystate.com slash free element. That's free L-M-N-T to check it out. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now, you can try virtual mobility coach free for two whole weeks. So you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are beyond stoked to introduce you all to an incredible human, David Joyce. When we came out with Supple Leopard in 2013, we were kind of stoked on ourselves. Not, not going to lie. But then David and one of his co-writers came out with a book called High Performance Train for Sports in 2014. And I was like, darn it, this book is so good. I have been David Joyce aware for a while, and he is one of the best thinkers, integrators, iterators, cultivators of what it means to create a high performance culture environment. 
all the aspects of that thing. He's an internationally recognized leader in human performance, strategy, decision-making. He holds master's degrees in sports physiotherapy and strength and conditioning. And he just got his MBA. He's an underachiever, clearly. You may have recognized him as being head of a lead performance for the GB, Great Britain Olympics, even Chinese Olympics. He's worked with hundreds of elite athletes. And uh, we are thrilled to talk about the fact that how he is shifting his focus towards enabling major sports organizations, corporations, and startups to navigate the choppy seas of complexity, which is really the heart of what it means to try to get human beings to do one thing really well on a sporting field. He's written and co-edited two internationally best-selling textbooks on high performance, and the new edition of High Performance Training for Sports has just been released in September, and we are grabbing him to talk about that. Enjoy the Ready State podcast. David Joyce is one of my heroes. David, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thanks, Kel. Glad to be here. Hi, Jules. Hi. It's so nice to have you. Hey, so I'm just going to jump right in with a question that Kelly's going to find annoying, but I'm, I'm doing it. We have a lot of coaches and strength and conditioning folks and physios and the like who 100% know exactly who you are. And then we also have a lot of people who do not fit that definition who are listening to the Ready State Podcast. So I know you have written several books. You have you seem to have a lot of education and advanced degrees. And are held um, in high esteem. Held by in some high of us. esteem by by my husband and other people in the strength and conditioning world. Can you give us just a little bit of background about who is David Joyce? Sure. Well, first and foremost, I'm a, a dad to two terrific young little tigers. I've got um, Matilda the little fox and and Rory the little tiger. That's who I am as a, a dad. And I guess First and foremost, I'm a coach. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I'm a physiotherapist. So not unlike, you know, a number of people that would be listening to this, but I view the world through a lens of coaching. So I do a lot of executive coaching now, do a lot of work in strategy, and I view it all as coaching, parenting as coaching as well. And I've been lucky enough to apply this trade around the world for 20 odd years now, a bit over. And in a lot of different contexts, Olympic sports, professional sports, you name it. And I've been really lucky to have been able to coach and be coached by some of the, the best. And I guess I put coach on my immigration form when I when I go into countries. You know, it's interesting because Kelly also, like you, does many things and wears many hats. But I think he also, were he to sort of reduce the myriad of things he does to one thing, it would probably be coach. Sometimes he uses the, the word teacher, but I think those in many ways are one and the same as in, a, in his own mind. And dancer. Well, yeah. I mean that too. Freestyle dancer. <laughs> you are also married to a person who has a similar job. Is that right? That's true. That's true. Yep. 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 So, so Kay, she's a, um, she's a physio. We met when she she crashed a wedding in England when I was living in England, and I like people with a bit of mischief in the in her eye or in their eyes, and and she's definitely got that. So I'm I've definitely 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 got the better end of that deal. You are talking to us from Sydney, and we love Sydney, and you're very close to the beach, but not close enough during lockdown to get there. We <laughs> have heard a lot of. Let me back up. You have pulled off a great miracle in the time of COVID, which was to put out what I think is one of the most important books in high performance, the second edition, in terms of really trying to think about getting people the most biomotor, durability, awesome function out of high performers. 
how have you coped being a coach? I think you made a little pivot. You're maybe even back in grad school. You put this book out. Sort of what are you working on and how has COVID sort of shaped your thinking about these processes? Because I think I want to take your experience and your brain and your exposure amongst the highest performers in the world and say, see the differences between how people are feeling now in COVID at home and where we're seeing the changes in our environment and sort of, you know, physical selves. I'm doing a lot less face-to-face stuff with athletes these days. I still am, but my ability to scale impact is probably a bit more on the strategic side of things. So my my day-to-day now, Kelly, is is very much so I do a lot of consulting work to the Australian Institute of Sport, to some startups, to universities and sporty organisations, both here in Australia and around the world, about how we can make lives for coaches and athletes and support staff better. And not, not just their lives, you know, their their everyday life, but how they can flourish as as professionals. And I think that's probably a better way of me being able to scale. And I've relatively recently finished my MBA. And so I've, I view the world through a much more strategic lens than what I did when I was, you know, in the gym every single minute of every single day. But ultimately, and it gets back to my, my first question the Jules asked about who do I see myself as, and that's a coach. And whether I'm coaching via Zoom, like so much of us, so many of us are now, or whether I'm coaching on the gym floor, we're still ultimately trying to get people better through our words. And what we do is influence people, right? So we show them a few things. We might show them a back squat technique or a, a particular stretch or a hamstring rehab protocol or whatever it is, but we're coaching people better through our words. And that stuff hasn't changed despite what we're doing in COVID. That's the fundamental currency of what we do and what we offer people, I reckon. And if anything, this our COVID has just accentuated and, and accelerated that. So speaking of coaching people in person, I was really excited to ask you a little bit. And I want to talk a lot more about your book. I know Kelly touched on it a little bit, but we'll get back to that. I know that you are the physiotherapist, which, by the way, is a way better word than the, what we use here in the U.S., physical therapist. No, I just got caught out, called really out sad. on a podcast with APTA. They were like, why do you call yourself a physio and not a physical therapist? And I was like, because all the men and women and people I work with in the world are physios and it's cool. And physical therapist doesn't sound as cool. So <laughs> anyway, this is the thing. Kelly also calls himself a physiotherapist. But anyway, I know you were physiotherapist, performance coach for multiple Olympic teams. And I would just love to hear a little bit about what you were doing and what that was like. Yeah, so I started off as a physiotherapist and then I did my master's in it and I was working in rug and Australian rules and, and a number of different sports. But I guess it was when I was working in Olympic sports that I started to realise that, oh, geez, being a physio by itself doesn't quite cut it because you're only seeing the world through one lens, which is why, you know, I went heavily down the strength and conditioning route. So in my view, I think there are there are two types of physios, certainly in sport. One is the people that are really gifted with their hands and can sense if one vertebrae is rotated by half a degree compared to another. Um, And I've never been that. And in my heart of hearts, I've never really believed it either. And so I was much more down the strength and load management route. And as a result, all my friends were strength and conditioning coaches. And so I added that to my armory and it made me a much better physiotherapist and it made me a a really good strength coach as well because I could see the 
through the the physio lens. And that's what being in Olympic organisations allowed me to do because it's a much more interdisciplinary team. And then when I, so that, that really kicked off when I was with Team GB when I was living in England. But when I worked with Team China up to and leading into and including the London Games in 2008, no, sorry, 2012, beg your pardon, like that completely changed the way I coach, you know, because I couldn't speak the language. I can, I can barely get by in English, let alone in Mandarin. And their approach to sport is and sport training is just so different to what I was used to. Like they, they view sport as a skill. So they, they never pursued athletic, sorry, aerobic capacity or strength. What they did was they just got really good at their sport and they did it so much that strength and aerobic capacity came as a byproduct. So that really shifted the way I think about things. And I, I don't think that's perfect, but I don't think the Western approach is perfect either. So what I've tried to do is is blend the two and and really look at a holistic view of, of where we sit in terms of athletic performance. We're seeing, uh, and this is a conversation I have with a lot of my friends and mem- even members of our staff, that in the United States particularly, we've stripped out skill out of particularly the gym. It's very physiology task-based. I put another kilo on the bar. I crank another watt out. must be better. Instead of looking at efficiency or coordination or I obsess on watching Chinese weightlifting videos. It's, you know, like if you go to my Instagram, I think it's back now. If you go to Instagram, you can- re- <laughs> I don't like, know if it's back. You can see who I am and who I am is like raccoon videos, cat videos, Chinese Olympic lifting and like mountain biking. It's really, it's very curated. It's heavy on the raccoon videos, by the way. Heavy on the raccoon <laughs> well, videos. Well, you know, that just makes sense. You're, you're my go-to raccoon guy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's true. I am totally down. <laughs> We were actually, as an aside, this is really important. I was having dinner with some friends and I was talking about having His a raccoon. His obsession with raccoons. And this guy at the table casually throws out, he's like, well, I have a raccoon. <laughs> and I swear, a coffee shot out my nose. And I was like, I, like mortal people have raccoons? And he's like, oh yeah, I've had a raccoon my whole life. And I was like, oh, okay, moving on. So my point is. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't the Tiger King, was it? No, no, I know. He's just, just, just like a regular just a, guy. Just a man with a raccoon. And... um. <laughs> We really see that when we put the lens of skill in and the heart of skill is sort of your ability to express positions, all the other physiology sort of becomes irrelevant. Then it's just like, well, can I hold this position under this metabolic load or this energy system, or I can hold this position under this strength? You know, why do you think the, the the stark contrast between those two styles? I mean, is there one that's better? You said you learned a little bit, you changed. How did it change your thinking there in terms of, of skill being the carrying the physiology? I absolutely fundamentally agree with what you're saying. And I think the Chinese weightlifters are some of the best in the world, right? And they're just the, the finest movers under the bar. And so they view strength as being important, but you get strength by being good at your job, which is getting a bar from the floor above your head in the most efficient way possible. Um, And so that what they did was they viewed putting more weight on the bar as just a way to add duress to see if your technique holds up. And in the same way, like swimming. So I did a lot of work with Chinese swimming. And let's just, we'll pick freestyle as an example. So they they go from blocks to touch in 50 metres in, say, 30 seconds, and you've got to do a million reps of that. 
but with perfect technique. And then once they've grooved that, they go, okay, well, for the next million, you're going to do it in 29 seconds. And the next million, you're going to do it in 28. And what happens is that your aerobic capacity improves to cope with the training. Not as the, that's not the horse that leads the cart. It's just the, the, the happy coincidence, the happy side effect. And so you'd never, unless it's in competition, you never see limit lifting in China. They're never struggling to get a weight above their head in shock and technique because if they do that, they go, well, that's too heavy. We need to pull that back a bit. And so that, that was just very much the approach that I took back to training in the Western world is to go, well, we're going to really emphasize that. We're not gonna, we're not gonna have shit technique in the gym on a bench press or or things like that, because that's just it's cheating your way up. And I'm a much bigger stickler for the skill of the sport and adding duress to try and put the skill off, I suppose. We believe that high performance sport is a way of understanding best practice best expressions of physiology, right? So that it's our test, test, test kitchen, test kind of laboratory, like in you know, teaching hospital, so we can transform society. You now are doing consulting with businesses. You are doing, you're, you've got, just got an MBA. How has that thinking changed how you coach humans who maybe aren't thinking of themselves as physical animals, but psycho-emotional sort of cognitive athlete persons? Has that, does that, does that fit over? Because you are sort of now taking all of the teaching that you've learned in a way of communicating, changing behavior. And all of a sudden you're finding that you have this different conversation. Yeah. It's funny because you, you realize just how socially leveraged sport is or how, how leveraged society is to sport. Because we think like those of us have been in sport all our lives. We think that that's just the world, you know, but when we look at the, the revenues of the big four sports in America, so baseball, basketball, uh, et cetera, that is roughly comparable to the revenue of the cardboard box industry. So you realize that actually sport is, is big, but it's nowhere near as big as what other, other people do. It just has a, a much bigger social impact, I suppose. And our stories that we get from sport are attractive into business. And that I guess that the thing is, is trying to tease out what is good practice. And you said something earlier about sport providing best practice. I'll push back just a little bit and say that I think sport's messy and it's a complex adaptive system and complex adaptive systems don't lend themselves to best practice, just good practice, because there are a number of different ways of skinning a gap, a cat, right? So if you want to prepare an athlete for a championship, it would be different to the way I would do it. Yours is good practice. Mine is good practice. And you're probably... Right, but both, like could, both could lead to the same end result of... Right. Exactly, exactly. We, we get caught in this best practice mindset, which means that there is one way of doing it. And therefore, we don't remain intellectually humble. You know, we just think, oh, this is the way you got to do it because this is what the textbook says. And life ain't like that. I'd, you know, it's certainly not in my experience. It might be if you're calibrating a force plate, but... That's a really simple, linear experience. It's not, it's not what we do. So I just want to go back to this whole question Kelly was asking you about skill and technique. Maybe this is a question for both of you, but you know, maybe outside of professional sport and then some CrossFit gyms perhaps, how do you get people to care about skill and technique? And especially one thing that always comes to my mind is youth sports. I think often there's some care to it, but having seen my own kids in a lot of youth sports, I think it is 
100% not a focus. And then certainly isn't for like everyone who just wants to ride their Peloton or whatever. I, I don't know. How do you guys get people to care? Like regular people or youth athletes or, or youth or coaches. Parents have, of, parents, of yeah, kids. Like how do you get people to care about technique and value it as much as, you know, whatever else they're working on sports specific wise? Behavior change is hard, right? So there's got to be a real user, there's got to be a value proposition to it. And the way we know humans work is that the value proposition has got to be one that is, there's got to be a bit of a burning platform. So you've got to be able to sell the performance case or you've got to be able to sell the injury case. And the injury case is pretty hard unless someone gets an injury. And then usually they go, oh, geez, I wish I had have known that first. And so there is, it's that burning platform. The only other way you can change it is by having, by getting in early with good coaching or to have regulation. Now, I'm not a huge fan of regulation. I don't think that it works in in a lot of instances. So I don't know how it would work here. So you've got to, what's the burning platform? The most compelling burning platforms are going to be the, the loss mindset, you know, when people get injured. But that seems a little bit inhumane. So you've got to have influence through the performance mindset and show how actually doing this improves performance. That's why injury prevention programs never work because they're coming from this nebulous. No, yeah. No one cares until they get injured. And can you imagine having that as your job title as injury prevention? Like every injury that you therefore get is, you know, you, you're not doing your job. It's a shock and job title. Cavity prevention. Oh, <laughs> awful. Awful. Can you see why David Joyce is is my like idol of coaching, how he talks. I basically just rip everything off that you say. Or it's just confirmation bias that I think I'm I'm moving in the right direction because we, I think that's the case so often is that we have to, especially in the physio land, talk about biomotor output as the only thing. If we can have better expression, then we're going to get all of these other things in the bargain in good practices. I really, I think that that's 100% right. It's difficult especially, and I I want to just give homage to good practices because it it is so difficult for a team to win a championship or for an athlete to win a medal. The number of things that have to happen around nutrition and quality coaching and sleep and getting everyone there on the bus and not getting sick and having decent coaching and a good relationship with the team. And it's almost like alchemy. So I heard someone recently say a team, they were talking about the Giants right now in baseball having a good run. And they were saying that like, it's like a miracle watching them play right now. All the things are hitting. And from the outside, if you didn't know, it's almost an impossible thing that's happening. I think that's why sport is so powerful. It's, it's so powerful. And yet as humans, we still try and reduce it to one decision or one coach or whatever, as they had all the impact. And it's a rainforest. So there is, there's a million different separate, but inseparable parts, right? And you cannot just take one bit out. That's what performance is an adaptive system. You can't run. So if, if you do a uh, break the record in the back squat in the gym for your organization, the strength coach will get the credit and the, the athlete will get the credit. But they couldn't have done that if they weren't appropriately fueled or if the physio hadn't have done the work with their back mechanics. There's a tug here and it's a network. And that's so important. Like the, the fact that one coach gets sacked or one coach gets all the praise for a complex output is just, it's crazy. It's the way we are. And I'm not, I sound like a crazy old man shouting here, but like it just, it doesn't fit with reality, right? Two questions. If that reality is, as you say, and I agree with you, are we able to apply that algorithm to other aspects of our lives? Because 
I'm the very much the face of the ready state, you know, and people say, you know, your work is amazing. I just as at a conference this weekend, they say I'm the best. And I'm like, yes, I know. But I say, you have no idea how rad our team is. And you can't even see that. And it's not, you know, you, none of this would even happen. We wouldn't be able to take a credit card or put something on the internet or edit a video or make the video in the first place if it wasn't a whole thing. Do you, do you think that that systems function approach, I'm sure there's a better name for it, can be transferred back? And we, that's what I mean when we say we take these lessons from what we're thinking about getting good output. So what you're touching on there is what I think is the most important job of the leader or the, the, you know, the head coach or whatever is to get the culture right. And the leader is frequently, but not always the smartest person in the room, but they must remain intellectually humble and go, right, well, how do I curate the environment for other people to succeed? And Sorry, just know, want I, to stop you there and make sure that you're aware that I'm the leader <laughs> of the Ready State and not Kelly. He was, so you know, he was saying I just, that. I, I know you were like he really looked, about to say something really profound, you, but I just, Julia. you know, just had to make sure, make sure you were aware. He's not a fool. I can't even see the side of the screen that <laughs> Kelly's on. I'm looking straight. I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, by the way. I'm, I'm totally kidding. The, not really. I'm looking into the windows of your soul there, Jules. So, um, yeah, so that's the important bit is, is being able to curate the environment upon which really good decisions are made. I like that word better, curate the environment versus culture, because culture, I feel like has a bunch of baggage that people are like, yeah, we have good culture. I'm like, what is that? What does that mean? You know, what's granular? Be granular about what it means to have good culture, right? And I don't think people can. It's certainly become a, a buzzword in the last sort of 15 years or even 10 years, I suppose. And it is one of those things that's easy to say and really difficult to implement or to change. It's like that US Supreme Court judge who said, I don't know what pornography is, but I can tell you when I see it. And it's kind of, it's the same sort of thing with culture. It's hard to define, but it's, you know, it when you're in a good culture and that the good culture is frequently, but not always associated with good outcomes. You can have a really good culture with terrible outcomes, um, but that- Ted Lasso. There you go. So this is a, what a fantastic thing. I'm not quite up to date on it. Like I think I'm a, an episode or two behind. They don't always go hand in hand, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, the way I see it is, and I think probably most people is you'd rather be part of a great culture that arguably doesn't make the metrics, the sort of external metrics that we're supposed to make if you have like a happy simpatico experience in life, right? Like who cares about whatever these external metrics are? Like if I go to work every day and I enjoy the people I work with, that trumps so many other external metrics. Yeah, and I don't think it's a non-zero sum. It's yeah. not one or zero, right? right? And, if you're, and if your job is to win, you can, I think you have to have both, right? Right. You have to have both, but I just think that winning is increasingly seen as too blunt a metric for success. It's just far too blunt. And that's why, you know, we look at businesses and their ESG, environmental, social, and governance, their triple bottom line is is actually as or more important than just profits. And in sport, we'll see that good culture is rewarded with other aspects, not just, you know, championship rings. So I'm going to take a little right turn. I want to go out of order and talk about your 2016 book about injury prevention. And if you could tell us a little bit about that book and especially, I was especially interested in hearing you talk about the injury proofing, sorry, injury profiling process. Especially, I was like, that didn't sound right. As especially it came right out. now, there's a whole bunch of physios in the internet sphere who say things like injury prevention is impossible. 
That's their yeah, hypothesis. I, and I did. Sorry, I was really struck, even though I said it wrong just now. Like injury profiling is really an interesting way of thinking about it. So I'd love to hear more about the book generally and about that. Sure, sure. So the book was born out of, I guess, a bit of a a realization that there are lots of performance textbooks, but very few of them have got really strong implementable tactics right from the very beginning written by some of the world's best. So there, a lot of them are evidence-based. This is so-and-so in 2014 said this, blah, blah, blah. This was countered by so-and-so in 2015. And it becomes a like a really difficult read for anything other than an academic source or an academic reason. And what we actually wanted was something that could be on the gym floor with people and they would go, bang, okay, I can do this. This, If I had Rhett Larson come into my organisation to talk about warm-ups, what would he say? Bang, there it is in the book. And so it's like a the world's best conference in you know between two covers. That was the initial intention. What we found was that it actually hit the niche really well. So it, be, it sold incredibly well around the world. I think it was because... We came at it from a standpoint of there's no one person that is an absolute expert in absolutely every aspect of performance. So we wanted to get people that was were writing about their one wood. If their one wood is aerobic capacity, if their one wood is, I don't know, jumping and landing, let's write about your wheelhouse and then we put it all together in, into a book. So that was what it was. And it was written in a language that was easy to understand. You didn't need a dictionary. It was implementable from day one. So, and to the second part of your question, Jules, about injury profiling, I stumbled on the idea when I was working in the UK, I was thinking, well, how do we, how is it that we get so many people into the country without doing cavity searches for every single one of them? And who does profiling the most? And it just struck me that probably the most, the organisation with the most background in this was the were the border agencies. So I actually went and spoke to them and said, you know, how do you how do you risk assess? Like there's a million people coming in to the UK every day. How do you do this? And they said, well, we have this generic warning index, which is uh, so they had a generic warning index and then a specific warning index. Uh, so the generic warning index might be anyone from a particular red flagged country and a specific warning index would be someone with a dodgy passport or something. And then they they filter it from there. And if you didn't hit them, you pretty much got a straight breeze through, which is as a, a white guy, college educated from Australia, you know, I was lucky enough to waltz through on most occasions. But so I tried to apply that to injury and go, well, we can't possibly screen for every single injury because there are infinite number of injuries, right? So what are the big risk factors in your particular sport? So let's just take baseball, for example. It might be elbows, shoulders, hamstrings, and ankles. Right, so let's put a disproportionate amount of our resources into looking at these, knowing that we might miss the odd neck injury, but it's it's such a smaller occurrence. So let's put our major resources into our, our bigger buckets and then have a, a specific warning index, which was about, okay, so you've had a previous ACL or you're a little bit older and therefore more prone to lumbar spine degenerative changes or, or whatever. So you're basically filtering out on a, these strands. So you've gone from an infinite number of injuries to maybe the, the eight or so that are most likely to occur. And it's just a much better, more targeted way of spending your resources. 
I really love that and relate to it so much. And, you know, I, I just have to tell you a story that one of the, and I imagine this happens to your friends and family too, but one of the pitfalls of being close to Kelly is that, um, I don't know what it is. There are about, a lot of pitfalls being close to me, by well, the way. The, the one in particular is recreational runners. I've been driving around in cars for 20 years with Kelly and, you know, you see a lot of recreational runners and there's a lot of really bad recreational runners. And so I think the way that we are injury profiling on a daily basis is the recreational runners in our neighborhood. I mean, now I can't unsee. And so I think, oh man, this lady is, you know, she's about to blow out her Achilles and definitely she's going to tear an ACL. And, and you know, you can't like, say that. What you can say is well, her running is so atrocious yeah. that she could go faster. So anyway, I love, he- I love I love hearing, say. I love hearing what injury profiling actually is because when I first read, I thought, oh, okay, this is my armchair diagnosis of what's going to happen to these poor people in five well, years you, time. You're, you're doing the pattern recognition <laughs> of, you know, that doesn't look like running, right? Which is a really simple place to start. <laughs> you know, this is a conversation I just had with Travis Jewett or staff, some really good running coach, put up a picture of an elite runner on a treadmill overstriding fifth metatarsal break again. And what they were saying was help, you know, because this has worked with this athlete. They're very competent now. What do you guys think? And he just put it out. And without calling anyone out, what Travis and I said was, I don't have any context. I don't know. Did this person sleep? What's their training volume? Do they have a back problem? What's going on upstream? You can't see anything. Why that shoe? What happens when they run barefoot? Does it, you know, do they warm up? What's their volume like? What's their injury history like? There's just, I think what's great about the profile idea is that where do we begin to control for some things and how do we say here is the thing that we understand the most that can have the biggest impact on things we can control, right? Is that the way to think about it? hundred percent. It's a, it's a complex adaptive system. Why do we have climate change? Oh, it's not just one thing. It's an interaction of a number of different things. So you, you try and find your biggest levers to pull. Yeah, absolutely right. And on the, the profiling bit, Jules, I think the important thing to look at too is that I'm, I would love to be in private practice in physio at the moment because what we're seeing with COVID is that because we're in lockdown here in Australia, there are people that are over-indexing on running because that's all they can do. Right. So you look at their training profile and they've gone from nothing to a million. You go, okay, well, I'll be seeing you in my clinic pretty soon. But you're also seeing this, this second tier of people that are not even getting incidental exercise of walking to the bus or walking to the cafe at lunchtime or, or whatever. And they're the ones that are going to be having their, their back pain because they're sitting at the desk all day. I wonder if COVID is just set up by the, the physio association to drum up more business. <laughs> to stress test just to us. make sure they have like 20 years of all the work that they need to do. I think it's, right. it's really interesting that we are ultimately in all sport or any high performance environment or your work, you make a hypothesis and you test your hypothesis. And you're, sometimes the outcome is winning. So the outcome is the hypothesis that you're testing is just, did we make improvement this week on a skill or a, an expression? We tested our human population with COVID and what we found is people didn't know how to eat. They didn't know how to self-soothe. They, they didn't know how to take care of themselves. And as you're saying, some of the incidentals of just being a modern human were erased. You know, I just didn't have to leave and get sunshine anymore. So I stayed in my house, <laughs> you know, and now I feel depressed. You know, I didn't interact. We just interviewed our friend, Brett Bartholomew, who's talking about social atrophy. Just the communication, you know, has withered because we're, we're not as adept. And I, I've just, I feel like, wow, we had a system that was under strain and not performing well. And then we've just fallen on our face again. You wrote this first book, High Performance Training, in 2014, and it really is a gold standard and a reference for anyone who 
is gone beyond exercising as entertainment. You've just, because, <laughs> and I think that's where we'll, we could have another podcast about how that's confused the world. It, inter, exercising is entertainment and it's valid and fantastic, but it's not the same things we're talking about here. And we've confused those things. But here you are, you've just put out a brand new edition on the 15th of September. And first of all, tell me before we get into that, how did you trick the world's greatest coaches and thinkers to be part of this? I need that algorithm because. This is a who's who of the greatest minds currently that we're aware of who've contributed to this body. It's incredible. Beyond tricking a girl called Kay Robinson to marry me and to have have my kids, it is my my greatest feat of being a uh, magician. So yeah, myself and my co-editor, Dan Lewandon, what we did was we we found we talked about in the the 2016 edition we found a need and because it actually did so well we created momentum and people actually really wanted to be involved with the with the second one the first one i basically tapped my mates and then the second one was it was a little bit easier because people could see the value prop i am just so humbled it's the most important thing for me to get across is I can't believe that I've been able to, or that we've been able to attract the people to contribute to this, yourself included. Like it is genuinely a career highlight that I've got Kelly Starrett writing in the book. Like it is genuinely a career highlight. So hopefully, I don't know where we can go from here, but we, we have we've got 16 new chapters, 35 new contributors, and you know, it is it's a hell of a thing to go through and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but geez, I'm, I'm really pleased to have it land on the shelves. How do you think besides a million and a half repetitions of everything, right? Where, you know, the internet has made us a lot of people don't realize that there's a really incredible network of coaches who do a lot of talking to each other offline that we watch what each other's do. We, we integrate, we synthesize, we iterate. And there's that that's really happening a lot. That's the power of social media. How do you think, besides this so much more, almost a decade more experience here, how has this book evolved in terms of practice or or that? Go ahead. I have to cut him off because I want you to answer that question, but I first want you to tell our listeners, what is this book? <laughs> and who are some of the other contributors? Everyone knows, obviously. Because Kelly's already skipped ahead to how it's evolved, but I would love for you to tell our listeners, what is this book about? Thanks, Jen. And Thanks for having my else, back. Who else contributed to it? Starrett Inc. That's an alley-oop. Um, right, so High Performance Training for Sports, second edition. So it is a 27-chapter book looking at all the facets of athletic performance, basically. We have got some of the greatest minds in in performance that are contributing to it. So Kel's contributed to it. Let's, I'm just looking through the, the uh, chapter list here. We've got Nick Winkleman. Which, and Nick has written one of the best sport textbook chapters I've ever read. It's the it's certainly the most different because he talks about coaching and cueing and he writes it in a narrative. So it's like a storybook rather than this is what good practice is, do this, do this, do this. He tells a story about an athlete and it is just a wonderful piece, wonderful, wonderful piece. We explain to everyone who what Nick's day job is? Nick is the head of sports science, sports medicine, and performance for the Irish Rugby Union, formerly the one of the big dogs at Exos, written a number of books, just a, a wizard, like a proper genius in this field, proper genius. We had yours and my good friend Brett Bartholomew write, uh, Stu McMillan with JB Marin talk about speed, 
what we tried to do was to go, right, well, these are the 27 things we think are, are really important about sport and, and athletic performance. Who's the best in the world to write about it? And we just went after them. And thankfully, we got most of them. So that's what it is. I want to highlight, listener, if you think this book is imminently accessible and full of so many things that would ins- like improve the sport of your children, even your recreational sport. This is what you're seeing is distillation of good practice across so many disciplines. It's really worth grabbing. Do, do grab this book. Yeah, thanks, Kel. What, what we tried to do was to be able to make it more broadly accessible than the first one. I thought the f- first one was fairly broadly accessible, but I really wanted to make sure that coaches could get hold of this, whether you're a coach of an under-14s volleyball team or whether you are you know, an NFL championship winning coach, that there was value in it. Because I reckon coaches need to know this stuff, not just the strength coaches, not just the physios. The coaches need to be able to have informed conversation so they can call out BS when they hear it, you know? It's really important. Or not get sidetracked by, you know, the new hotness on the internet. <laughs> you know, I see, we see all these trends and Julie and I are just like, wow, it's so, amazing. So I cut off Kelly's question, but I would love to know, especially since we've done two editions of Supple Leopard, we sort of know the pain that is putting out a big book twice, but how did it evolve? What's different? It sounds like it's very different, but Tell us about the evolution in your thinking and the book and all those things. So thankfully, there's a thing called traumatic amnesia, which is basically you forget you forget the pain of the first one. That's why we have more than one baby. That is exactly why. It's, it's why people double up to do a second marathon. So we, we've forgotten about just how hard writing a book was, and, and I'm sure you can attest to that, Cal. And then we felt that it was time, and the, the publishers were pestering us, thankfully, to put it out again. But we said that what we would do – the, the only reason we would do it would be if we could basically write a new book, um, which sounds counterintuitive, but most second editions are kind of 30% different. Yours is quite a bit different, but most other books are about 30%. This is about 80% different. So it is a brand new book because what we wanted to do was to be able to give enough of a value proposition for people that had bought the first one to go, oh, I really should get the second one because it's a different book. What we tried to do was put a lot more emphasis on not just the X's and O's, but the things which can connect the trenches. So it wasn't just enough to, for us to say, all right, this is aerobic fitness in team sports, this is aerobic fitness in individual sports or winter sports or whatever it is. We put a lot of what I call suspension chapters in there, like learning, like um, coaching and cueing, like influence, like how you can bring this ecosystem together so that you've got a much more cohesive look at what performance is. You know, we've got stuff on on mental health and mental performance. We really wanted to shift the narrative away from an illness perspective into a performance perspective. So that that's kind of been the the drive with that. And I think you know, edition three, and it's uh, I've almost got traumatic amnesia already. But edition three would be looking a little bit even more at some of the the mental health and mental performance aspects as well. As you get older and, you know, I, I was just on a podcast today and someone's like, you have become a lot more mellow and reasonable and charitable. And I was like, maybe I have, maybe, you know, maybe just, we're old. Maybe I'm just, I'm just too tired now to, to fight on the internet. But, you know, one of the things that is remarkable about your perspective change, even going back and getting an MBA and, you know, kind of pulling yourself out of the, the immediate iron of, you know, high performance 
we're seeing the real critical evolution for everyone in the best coaches in the world have gone a quantum leap better in the last eight years. Like Nick Winkleman was incredible coach, but in the last eight years, he's become a super person. I think about Stuart McMillan and his process and awareness and transparency and his work with Dan. And it's shocking to see what a better coach he was than when I first met him and had high regard for him then. So it's really, I almost feel like you're going to have to do this just because the coaches have evolved so much given the information and the iterative nature of what we do and the collaboration. You know, even just describing yourself, just so everyone's listening, the role now is not necessarily head strength coach, it's head of performance, which includes all of these things that make a, a durable, nice person right, who's successful. And you have to be versed. You have to be a real generalist in all of these things. And I think we haven't set people up with the tenets of that in feeding their kids, fueling their kids, managing their own exercise. It's, this book is really important is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, thanks, Cal. I think my brain works best by looking at a broad thing. So I'm not a depth guy. I'm as deep as a puddle. So I'm much more, I really look to connect different parts of an ecosystem together to make a a bigger, so it gives me a better understanding of what an output is. And that's always the way I've approached performance. There is merit and the world needs people that dig really deep trenches, but it needs people like yourself that can connect the trenches, that can see things from different angles, like have got a a variety of narratives in their head and that are cognitively and intellectually flexible and and humble in in their way of of approaching a problem. We say curious. Julian are trying to be always be curious. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I use the word discovering. Like I think that's really important. And curiosity. So if I if I look at the things I want my kids to have is adventurous, brave, curious, calm and kind. And so if I want them to be like that, I've got to model that as well. And it just, I'm curious because I get bored. I just get bored looking at the Acton Myerson all day. Like I'm much more, I want to look at broader things. Um, and Stu McMillan, Winkleman, Bartholomew, you know, these people. Nick Gill. Gilly, exactly, exactly. You know, really broad, wise people. And I think wise, if I think about what wisdom, they can see the world through different lenses. So if you look at Dalai Lama, what, what would be the words that used to describe him? It's, you know, wise and calm and considerate and insightful and all that sort of stuff because he just sees the world from, you know, a number of different perspectives. And I think that's what the modern super coach is. That's what we look to because it just gives you so many different tools to solve problems. So, David, where can people find this book and buy it for? their kids coach and for their themselves and you can get it actually you can get a, a, a slab of them is that the right word also, that's the australian word like a slab of stubbies and, and also slab of yeah like, like where can that's they a go buy a beer, box everyone, and, a slab and of you know a christmas present for everyone they know and also where can people find you and learn more about you and all the cool stuff you're doing yeah, I appreciate the question. I'd be staggered if people hadn't heard of Amazon. So that's <laughs> that would be uh, – I think it's available in all good bookstores and a few bad ones as well. So that's that. And if people want to find me at David D. 
Joyce on Twitter or david.g.joyce1, as in the figure one, at gmail.com if they wanted to email me. That's probably the best way and really happy to interact with people. But, you know, genuinely, genuinely, it was a, it's a career highlight to get you into this book, Cal, and, and to appear on, on this show that I'm a, a devotee of as well. So thanks for having me. You're so welcome. And lastly, to just wrap up, you've just tied a bow on an MBA. You went back to grad school. You just put out this like w- this book. What are you going to do to celebrate? Just yeah. This, what's next? What are because, you looking forward to? Because the old the fallacies. You won another championship. When are you going to start to train for the next one? Right. <laughs> yeah. So how yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. Are you finding a pause? Is it? Are you motivated? What, what are you, what, what are you about? doing? He's got to market this book. Kills. There's no pause right, right now. The book you haven't actually started. Just kidding. Working but I would. What, what are you looking forward to? What's next? The sad reality of the situation is I am desperate for a haircut. I'm really looking forward to be able to get out of. Did not see that coming. <laughs> so, so the 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 thing that um that. COVID and lockdown and restrictions gives you is a real sense of appreciation for things that you haven't been able to do and be able to take or that you've taken for granted for a long time. So seeing friends and family, getting to restaurants and having a haircut, they're immediately on the agenda as are mountain biking and getting into the ocean. So they're all just slightly outside our 5K zone. So they're the things that I'm really looking forward to. Well, come to Marin County and mountain bike with us anytime. We Can I? Oh yep. yes, we we just uh, we had an amazing time in Australia, and our girls adored it. And I cannot wait to get back there. And uh, I think you guys drink VB, is that right? I'm I'm just trying to wrap my head around the best beer in Australia. I think it's Victoria Bitters. Oh, the the uncultured among us drink that, and I certainly <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> well, and and I am a I am a fully paid up member of that uncultured crew. So. <laughs> David, thank you David, so thank much, you man. So it's such a pleasure. I can't wait to see you guys in person. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it!